Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, the latest reaction to New York City's congestion pricing plan, and it may surprise you. Folks don't just do one thing. They drive and they take mass transit. WBGO's Bob Henley chats with Reverend Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. You look at the number of poor people, 55 million, 52 million without a living wages, 140 million in the country. So first thing is talk to them like human beings. Theater critic Harlan Jacobson reviews Steven Spielberg's The Fablements. Is Spielberg's stab at not-so-subliminal messaging? This is the childhood of a man born to tell stories. And I'll chat with Michael Klein, producer and artistic director of the Exit Zero Jazz Festival in Cape May. You know, Gregory Porter is our headliner. This is the second time that Gregory will be performing at the festival, the first time that he'll be outside. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. A group of New Jersey residents is speaking out in favor of New York City's congestion pricing plan. They held a rally in support in Jersey City this week. There's been a lot of backlash in New Jersey on congestion pricing, including coming from the governor. However, New Jersey resident Renee Reynolds with the Tri-State Transportation Campaign says she and other Jersey residents support a toll for drivers who enter south of 60th Street in Manhattan. Folks don't just do one thing. They drive and they take mass transit. And if mass transit were better, perhaps they would make that choice more often. Dana Dennis is with the Riders Alliance. Look at cities like Jersey City or Hudson County, right? Which is suffering the most congestion of cars coming through their neighborhoods. There is some relief there as well. We get off of a New Jersey train, off of a bus into the city, and we hop on the subway. We hop on a bus. That's important to our commute as well. Reliability of mass transit in New York. Revenue from congestion pricing will be used to improve mass transit. Others argue that congestion pricing will improve traffic in New Jersey communities near New York City. Last weekend at Princeton's University Chapel, Reverend Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, delivered the keynote address entitled A New Heaven, A New Earth, Beyond Poverty. It was for the World Student Christian Federation, U.S., part of a global network of more than 100 student movements around the world, organizing a movement of Christian students in the United States. Reverend Barber delivered the homily at President Biden's inaugural prayer service at Washington's National Cathedral. In the last two years, Reverend Barber has expressed disappointment that the White House and democratically controlled Congress has not been able to raise the $7.25 minimum wage nor make permanent the expanded child tax credit, for which the half year it was in effect lifted millions of children out of poverty. WB Joe's Bob Henley attended the keynote address event and spoke with Reverend Dr. Barber afterward. We're having an election in New Jersey around the country. You did a survey, Shelley Barnes did a survey about voters in 2016, and we figured there's some 400,000 people that are low wealth mm-hmm. that were registered but didn't go to the polls. Mm-hmm. How would you counsel people that want to get turnout? What Give them a coaching session. What do they say as they go to door in these communities where folks did not vote? Well, you know, it's waking the sleeping giant was that study. The Kairos Center, Repairs of the Breach, Kairos Center, Poor People's Campaign. I was talking to Shadow one day and said, we need to look at this because we had read, we had touched 2 million people in 20, 
uh, 20. And we know that the Biden administration got 53% of the poor low white voter. What we found is three things. Number one, don't go in those communities saying things like, you just need to vote. Tell them what, let's say, wait a minute, say, say, first of all, we honor you. Respect that some of them have not voted because they've never heard anybody call their name. Nobody, politicians don't talk about the poor most of the time. They talk about the middle class, the upper class, or those desiring to get into the American dream. But we need to say the word. Uh, you look at the number of poor people, 55 million, 52 million without a living wages, uh, 140 million in the country. So first thing is talk to them like human beings. Second of all, say to them, I'm not here to ask you to vote. I'm here to ask you to join a movement. And I'm here to ask you to join a movement that says something is wrong with our policies that leave this many people disinherited. Thirdly, I'm asking you to believe that just democracy, not just an idea, but democracy and justice are on the ballot. So who you elect is going to determine living wages, it's going to determine health care, going to determine even if you can push them to do the right thing. Because if, you, if people get elected who tell you up front, don't come to me about living wage, don't even talk to me, then you don't even have a real chance with them to some degree. And then lastly, let people know how much power they have. There's not a battleground state where, where the presidential election was decided within three percentage points that poor and low wealth people don't make up 45% of their electorate. That's huge. There's not a state in this country where poor and low wealth people don't make up 33% of the electorate. In my state, North Carolina, it would only take 19%, which is right around 100,000, 120,000 of the 600,000 poor and low people that didn't vote. 120,000 could overcome any margin of victory. Can we, is it overstating and say we have a Senator Ossoff and Warnock because of that? Sure. Be, be, because, well, I think that what we, what we found in the study was, if you look at the numbers, um, and that those, they turned out because the president and Warnock and them were running on living wages. That's why they can't go back. Politicians be hear me today. You can't stop now talking about living wages and, and, and voting rights. That's what people heard. Uh, yes, we've done some things on climate, historic thing, great. Yes, we've done some things uh, with Medicare and, and pricing on the drugs, great. But you can't dismiss what was left off, voting rights and living wages. You at least have to tell people, give us the kind of majority that we, we, can, uh, we, we can't be overturned easily. And we'll deal with that. We'll deal with the filibuster. We'll deal with living wage. We'll deal with health. Because that's how one up and, 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 and then one. You look at the, I think we touched about 200,000 people in Georgia. And then we went back and looked at how they voted and where they voted. And large percentage of them that hadn't voted before, they voted for an agenda. So it sounds like it starts with a conversation. Like you don't come and tell somebody. Mm -mm. You come with your heart and your ear open and say, "What are you? What's hurting you? Yeah. How has the system failed you?" And get involved in a deeper conversation. Yeah. If 85 million poor people in this country, who, if there are 85 million low-income voters and 58 million voted in the last election, the highest turnout in recent years, but but 27 million, you can't go up and act like 27 million people are stupid. 27 million people are uninformed. 27 million people don't have consciousness. Some reason, they've had some legitimate reason. You might not be your reason, but you know. You, we already know what the reason is. But we have are. to hear that. We have to be patient enough to, have to listen hear that. and learn. That's that. right. And then let people know what their power is. But we also, for the politicians, they need to go and apologize sometimes. Look, look at these campaigns we're running now for the Senate. Which one of them? Tell me one state where there's been a debate between the senators where they've talked about what they're going to do with power. Or in the presidential election. And right now, was, I, I feel some going to make the mistake and say, look, we, we brought poverty down 30 million. Okay, that's great, but it's 111 million more people out there. 
we can't make that insignificant. We have to say it is significant, but it's not insurmountable if we get people in office who understand every problem we face, lack of po poverty, lack of health care, lack of living wages, all those are created by policy. They can be changed by policy, and poor and lower people hold the power to was, put people in office. I was speaking with George Gresham uh, from 1199. My friend. Yes. Yeah. And he has taken a really heroic position about being for universal health care. I just was at a rally in Trenton where public workers who, health workers involved with the pandemic are looking at a 20 to 24 percent increase in premiums. Sure. Which is going to do away with whatever wage increase they got. Why are we dodging? Why don't we hear about universal care in this election? It's not too, even on too the Too many of these consultants that consult, especially Democrats, are trying to find one issue. They, they say, well, we can win now if we just focused on January 6th and, and, and rolling back row. But what you have to do is connect the same people that did January 6th and roll back row, also block living wages, also block health care, also block uh, voting rights. Connect the dots. Don't, don't disconnect the dots. But also, you know, we've got this group called moderates on both sides, and they believe more in order than reordering society. Um, we believe in congressional universal health care. Because every congressperson, every senator gets health care the minute they get elected, universally. And we pay for it. So we're the only country in the 25 wealthiest countries in the world that does not offer some form of universal health care. So in essence, we say in America, your health care is connected to your job, and, and I mean to your job and not your body. That's immoral, particularly for me as a Christian. My health care should be connected to my humanity. I never saw Jesus charge a copay. I never t saw Jesus say, wait a minute, I'll heal you with leprosy, but first you've got to give me something. And so we've got to have a retooling of our narrative, but it's only going to happen if poor and low-wealth people do it. Nobody else can, that's why we're organizing poor and low-wealth people, advocates and religious leaders, because we have to be the uh, ones that reshape the moral narrative. And it's happening in workplaces. Like I see oh, the Dollar God. General, oh, my. Uh, Chipotle, yeah. everywhere. I the mean. poorest workers are now organizing like never before. And there's something happening in this country. And I'm glad it is, because I'm going to tell you, there's a flip side. Poor and low-wealth people realize that addressing these interlocking injustices, systemic racism, systemic poverty, ecological devastation, denial of health care, war economy, are critical to the soul of the nation. And if people ever start believing the nation has no soul, that's the breeding ground for demagogues and autocrats. That's how Hitlers and Putins and other folk get into office. That's not healthy ground. WBGO's Bob Henley with the Reverend Dr. William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. This is the film Festival Season. Our film critic, Harlan Jacobson, is doing some globetrotting to tell us what's coming our way. The Corvid is set in cinema arts or the performing arts. You know, festival is a misleading term, even a misnomer. The important A-list fests are really conventions, a cross between sales conventions to introduce the new line, in the garment industry parlance of my salesman father, and marketing launch pads for the coming season of film debuts. We're in the festival year's far turn, with Venice and Telluride just over, Toronto ending its session, and the upcoming San Sebastian and New York film festivals soon to introduce films that will dominate the cultural conversation and maybe even the box office for the next half year. Most notably, 
There are three film director memoirs. Steven Spielberg's much-anticipated The Fablemans, which served as Toronto's highest-profile debut on the international film festival scene, and which Toronto secured exclusively before its November 11th opening. Then there's Sam Mendes' Empire of Light, which played at both Toronto and Telluride, and James Gray's Armageddon Time at Telluride after having debuted in competition at Cannes last May. The Fablemans is the first film Spielberg has given to Toronto, which fought hard for the exclusivity. The 75-year-old Spielberg is unabashedly sentimental in virtually every film, but The Fablemans is like hitting a grown-up's home movie trove. It harks back to his family's migration from Cincinnati, New Jersey in the film, to Phoenix and ultimately California. Tony Kushner, who wrote the new West Side Story for him, returned to Spielberg to fictionalize his odyssey in the character of the young Sammy Fableman. On seeing the train wreck in The Greatest Show on Earth, as a kid taken by his parents to the neighborhood movie theater, Sammy has an almost instantaneous fascination with the movies. He doesn't want to see more. He wants to make them. A passion supported wholeheartedly by his Jewish mama Mitzi, Michelle Williams, who made the 50s deal of trading in her career as a pianist for housewife and grudgingly tolerated as frivolous by his loving computer engineer father Bert Paul Dano. The script is guilty of the usual Spielberg punctuation marks to make septuple sure that the audience gets the points it wants to make. Inserting a toilet paper movie mummy joke here, a scene there of losing their belongings overstuffed grapes of wrath style into the family beater as they tumble out into a puddle on their pell-mell migration west. While I have come around on Spielberg over the years, how could one not? His output has been astonishing, his impact inestimable. One always sees the economic imperative of the compact with Universal Studios to sell the movie to the shopping mall first. Even the title, the characters, the fablemans, is Spielberg's stab at not-so-subliminal messaging. This is the childhood of a man born to tell stories, against not all odds, but those of a family that fractured in 1950s America, when marital affairs and divorce were whispered. Legions of A-list craftspeople have conspired to lure people with 20 bucks away from Trump, the Queen's Coffin, Godard's Last Breath, whatever the day brings, to believe in Spielberg's world and to the extent that it happened here in his America. What an incredible fable, man. As Mitzi, the mom, Michelle Williams channels Shirley MacLaine a bit, accented by some Shelley Winters ethnicity. Paul Dano plays the cyber engineer dad, Bert, sweet, like the Tin Man gradually grasping that oil only takes you so far doesn't really replace desire. Gabriel LaBelle, the kid who plays Sammy, the filmmaker to be, is likable without sliding into unctuous Jewish kid parody territory, a distinct risk of this genre. There are also three obligatory wise men. Dad's best friend, Seth Rogen, is Uncle Benny, whose goofy friendliness counterpoints Bert, Dano's engineer dad, which is played out along the story's main axis of living in the workaday world versus the creative one, the world of moving parts versus the one full of lions, tigers, and love in the fifth reel. Benny lives inside his mom's emotional and philosophical dimensionality that Bert 
just doesn't see. This is it. The Fablemans, Spielberg, the John Williams score, in full Nabisco sugar wafer form, taken directly from the film. to change how everything looks. It's hard to find our house. Ours is the dark house with no lights. In this family, it's the scientists versus the artists. Sammy's on my team, takes after me. It's young filmmaker Sammy who sees deeply into the frame, the magic of which captures all the information we overlook in daily life and must reconcile Uncle Benny's bounciness with his deep betrayal. Judd Hirsch arrives as Mitzi's wizened uncle Boris, a crazy man carny and stuntman for a scene that is basically Yoda, the crazy Jewish mentor, out of whose mouth falls the truth about art. If Sammy missed the nuance of Uncle Boris's shtick, he gets a parting shot with David Lynch doing a deep dive into a cranky legend that isn't so much acting as exhuming in a short, hot master class on knowing where the horizon goes in the frame. Spielberg, uh, Sammy, got the memo. More big titles to come from San Sebastian and New York coming up soon, and I'm Harlan Jacobson. It's become quite an event. And now the Fall 2022 Exit Zero Jazz Festival takes place in Cape May, September 29th through October 2nd. And joining us is the person responsible for this wonderful festival. The producer and artistic director of the festival is Michael Klein. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Doug. It's great to be speaking with you. The Exit Zero Jazz Festival <laughs> debuted in November of 2012 in the National Historic Landmark City of Cape May. Certainly a picturesque beach town on the very southern tip of New Jersey. And so many people love to vacation or whatever, spend a week, a weekend in one of the best places in New Jersey and around the country. And that's Cape May. So what a perfect spot to have a jazz festival. And I know when this first started, one of the goals was just to get people to come down in the off seasons. But now people love to come to Cape May and they love jazz. It's been a perfect marriage, hasn't it, Michael? It has. Yeah. When we uh, when we first started out back in 2012, we were an indoor festival. And um, the first year we were in in November. So, uh, yeah, um, now that we're outside in uh post-COVID, and we found this uh, beautiful home um, right where the Atlantic Ocean and the Delaware Bay meets. Um, yeah, it's a, pretty, it's, a, it's a pretty incredible location for a festival. We're really lucky. And you have a couple of different venue spots uh, all close together, but the Cape May Convention Hall and, of course, the wonderful Ferry Park are two of the main places where people can see wonderful performers. And, again, your lineup, is spectacular. You have John Pizzarelli's Swing 7, Joshua Redman, Stacey Kent, and then at Ferry Park, you have people like Gregory Porter, Angelique Kijo, Christian Sands Quartet. The number goes on and on of, of these performers. 
obviously they realize the importance of this festival and people who want to see great jazz. Yeah, I think they do. Um, you know, we've, we've been fortunate in that um, we've been able to attract uh, really amazing talent, um, you know, to the festival really from the beginning, from year one, you know, we had um, Ramsey Lewis was our, our first headliner back in 2012. We had Ramsey Lewis and, um, and also headlining co-headlining of the festival was Christian McBride and uh, his band inside straight. And so, yeah, really from day one, we've, we've been fortunate to be able to attract great talent um, where, you know, Kate May sits about, two and a half hours from New York. It's about 80 minutes from Philadelphia. It's maybe three hours from Baltimore. So, so really, you know, we we're we're within driving distance of, of a lot of the musicians who are, who participate at the festival. You mentioned Ramsey Lewis. Of course, we lost the yeah. NEA jazz master. What are your remembrances of, of the first time he performed there and, and what was it about Ramsey Lewis that struck you? Well, it, it was it was interesting because I I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, and my parents um, they bought a home when I was about four years old. So we're talking about 1964, and so we were one of those families in the summer that piled in the car every Friday night. We drove from Reading down to Cape May, um, and then you know Sunday night we went back home. And um, I can remember, I think it was right around 1972 or so, where, um, you know, my, my dad had three eight tracks that he plugged religiously into his, his cassette deck in the car. And, and uh, one of them was Ramsey Lewis's Sun Goddess. Uh, the other was Earth, Wind and Fire. And... Um, Oh gosh, who was the, the last one was oh oh man, I'm gonna forget now. But it was um it was an honor to have Ramsey uh perform at the first festival because it was really on those rides back and forth to K May, back to Reading, that I really got turned on to so much great music, you know. And so um it was it was a thrill for my mom and dad to be able to attend the festival back in in 2012, and it was it was just a thrill for all of us for for Ramsey, you know, to um, perform with his trio. Kind of came full circle for you. It really right? did. Yeah, it was yeah, great. That's special. I uh, I mentioned some of the performances that that are coming up. Do you want to uh, give us a brief summary of the lineup? Wow, I mean it's. It's pretty incredible. Um, Gregory Porter is our headliner. This is the second time that Gregory will be performing at the festival. The first time that he'll be outside at our main stage venue. And I know the reaction that Gregory got the last time he was here. And uh, I just, I can't wait to hear the reaction, you know, that he's, that I know he's going to receive this time. I think about the first note that he hit when he was here in 2017 and the reaction from the crowd and the hair still stands up on the back of my neck. I still get chills and um, I can't wait to bring that experience again in a couple of weeks to uh, the fans who are going to be at the festival. Um, we're also, we're, we're looking forward to welcoming, you know, all of the artists, but we've never uh, had the pleasure of, of um, 
presenting Angelique Kijot. And so we're really, really thrilled about that. Um, looking forward to just, um, we pride ourselves in, in a broad and presenting a broad spectrum of music, uh, you know, just a lot of different genres. And, you know, Angelique is, she is the queen and um, she'll be gracing our stage on Sunday, October 2nd. So we're, we're looking forward to that. I also, for the first time, we're going to be um, uh, presenting Daime uh, Araseño from uh, Cuban Vocalist. Um, we've never had her before. I actually, I actually saw her at the Havana Jazz Festival back in 2019. And um, the same day that Daime will be here on Saturday, October 1st, we have the great Cuban pianist uh, Harold Lopez Nusa and his quartet returning to the festival for the second time. So that um, that stretch of music in the mid afternoon on Saturday is just is going to be is going to be pretty intense. We're speaking with Michael Klein, the producer and artistic director of the Exit Zero Jazz Festival taking place in Cape May. September 29th through October 2nd. It's the fall 2022 version of the festival. When you take a look at the years that have gone by now, what's different, in your opinion, about Exit Zero as to the first Cape May Jazz Festival those years ago? Well, I mean, you know, first one that jumps out is now we're 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 mostly an outdoor festival. Um, and so production-wise, it's it's a lot easier you know, for the production rather than, you know, working with about eight or 10 sound crews and in, in clubs and in, in, in halls. Um, now we can, we can focus on, on um, a lot of our energies on that production, you know, outside at Ferry Park. And then we do the, the night concerts in Cape May Convention Hall. And so, you know, production wise, it's, it, um, it's a lot easier. It's a lot more focused. It's a lot better. You know, we've really, to me, we've really improved the experience for everyone. Um, and it's it's different in that, um, you know, now it's, it's uh, the community of Cape May and really the business community of Cape May, they're on board. You know, in those early years, it was a struggle. You know, <laughs> and so to say the least, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, to get that, you know, because you really do need support. Um, and and so, you know, from so many people and from so many businesses to be able to pull something off in such a small community that Cape May is. I mean, you know, the year, year round population, I think, is about 2,500 in Cape May. You know, that goes up to, you know, 50,000 people who are here, you know, during the summer months every day. But essentially, it's a it's a really small town. And and um, we've been able to to just transform it into a huge jazz village, you know, two weeks out of out of uh, out of every year when we do it in spring and fall. And it's just people now they look forward to it. They ask what they can do to support it. You know, um, people are involved. And that's that's really, um, you know, I felt like we really turned a corner on that, especially post-COVID when we were able to bring the festival back. It kind of became a sense of community pride. Much like Melissa Walker and Christian McBride did with the Montclair Jazz Festival. Yeah. You mentioned you yeah. have two different festivals. You, you know, you have the fall and, you know, you have uh, the spring. That's worked well, hasn't it? 
It has. Yeah. You know, and it said we, you know, we started that because, um, you know, K-May is a tourist town. And so really um, our festival started in 2012 and that same year Cape May convention hall was, was rebuilt and a, a new building was on the beachfront. And um, you know, the, the festival really became the, the cultural and economic backbone of the city of Cape May in the shoulder season. So back then we were in April and November um, and there really wasn't much going on in town, you know, in those in those months and so um the festival you know was was really able to to spur tourism because you know we were filling up all the hotels in town um we were filling up all the businesses you know the bars um which normally would have been closed you know they stayed open through november they opened early in the spring to be able to accommodate the festival and it, it was it was really um had a had a huge impact on on the city of k may once again, the Fall 22 Exit Zero Jazz Festival will take place in Cape May. And once again, those wonderful venues of the park there. You have Convention Hall and you have Ferry Park. And uh, check out the website again for more information to learn more about this festival. And Michael, Michael Klein, the producer and artistic director of the festival, once again, uh, keep on going. Keep on making it happen. And... Uh, we know this year is uh, always getting bigger and better as you go. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can see my entire interview with Michael Klein on the WBGO Facebook page. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join me next Saturday at 530 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz station, WBGO and WBGO.org.